0: All right. Good evening, everybody. See some comments already. Good. Good to see some people checking in. You can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter eleven, and uh, we're going to jump right into it tonight. Got quite a bit to cover in this chapter. My voice hasn't been a hundred percent this week, so I think I should forego the singing at least for tonight. Maybe tomorrow we'll pick that back up. But Matthew eleven. And let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray together, and then I'll give you the outline. Father, thank you this evening for the privilege of once again sitting down, hitting pause on our day, and putting everything else aside so that we can concentrate on You and Your Word. Lord, we realize that this hour that we're about to go through, is it is not the end goal of Christianity Lord, it's not just to learn the Bible. We want to learn something so that it changes us, so that we can use it. I pray that You would please, Father, assist, help, direct, guide, Lord, every step, every word. I pray that it be clear, and I pray that it be powerful. Please help us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 11. And this is a... This chapter has some fascinating things to it. I'm going to break it into four parts. Verses 1 to 6, part 1, John doubts. John, that's John the Baptist. John doubts. And then verses 7 to 15, part 2, John is praised. Jesus pays him some very high compliments. Verses 7 to 15. Part 3, verses 16 to 27 Generation condemned. So we have John doubts, John is praised, generation is condemned, or generation condemned. And then the chapter closes, verses 28 to 30. I'm going to say point four is Jesus's classroom, and we'll explain that more when we get to it. All right, verse number one it says, It came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples. Now, we understand from the chapter before, and last week's lesson, I, we compared Scripture with Scripture. This group of 12 is a, is a special group chosen and sent out to accomplish a very specific purpose. So when it says His 12 disciples, let us not think that He only had 12 followers. There were hundreds of followers, disciples, if you will, but these 12 were not only disciples, but also apostles. And chapter 10 focused in on their calling and their commissioning. So verse 1, we're dealing with them. It says, after he made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. So Jesus has deputized, if I can say it that way, these 12 men to go out and spread the message of the kingdom. But then Jesus himself is still going to be busy with the job of evangelizing and telling people to repent and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 2, Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him... Now notice, it's written as if John is speaking to him, but he's sending the two disciples to speak on his behalf. You might recall a few chapters ago that the centurion sent... A, um, we say a delegate on his you know group of people on his behalf and he spoke to Jesus through those people same thing happening here he sent two of his disciples and said unto him art thou he that should come or do we look for another. Now I surprisingly I, I get a decent amount of questions about this passage people want to know um, why John asked this Is there some deep, mystical reason? Guys, I think it's right there on the surface for us. John the Baptist, as great of a man as he was, he had some doubts. And I believe there's a very specific reason as to why he doubted. He was preaching righteousness. He was fulfilling the will of God. And he was preaching to Herod, you might remember, and he rebuked Herod said directly, it's not lawful for thee to have her, talking about this, the wife that he had because it was an adulterous situation. And John had been arrested, and now he's pretty much just waiting to die in this prison. And whenever we go through difficult circumstances in life, it does sometimes shake our faith. And I say our, even the best of us, and I'm referring to John here, even the strongest of believers can sometimes go through something so heartbreaking so confusing that they begin to raise some some questions uh, so let's take a look at why john specifically why his circumstance might have caused him to doubt take your bible come to psalm chapter 69 psalm 69 Right. Psalm 69 and verse number 33. I want to show you just three different places quickly in the Old Testament. And these are not the only three, uh, but these are indicative of what you'll find throughout the old Old Testament. Psalm 69 verse 33. It says here, "For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not His prisoners. So there are some people that are persecuted, For God's sake, even before Christ came, the followers of God were at times persecuted, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Daniel, many of them. And when they're thrown in prison, they have this promise, God does not despise. He doesn't just ignore and forget about the people that have gone to prison on his behalf. But here's John sitting in a prison cell. No doubt, much better acquainted with the Bible than than probably all of us put together. He knows that these promises exist and he's wondering, alright, well God, if I was fulfilling your will and I'd, I've been telling everybody that Jesus is the Son of God, he's the Messiah. Remember, John was the one who first proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He introduced Jesus to the nation right, on a national stage uh, as the Messiah. And now, is, is, has God forgotten about him? as he sits in that prison cell, come to uh, Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah 61. Now Psalm 69, that's a, a general promise right, that could apply to any prisoners that uh, are being persecuted for God's sake. I'm going to give you a couple of verses now from Isaiah that speaks directly to the, the coming of the Messiah and how it is linked to the freeing of prisoners. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Do you remember this passage in the New Testament? Jesus, in Luke 4, when he, when he went to the synagogue, he stood up to read, and this was his manner, right? His custom. He was an active participant in the synagogue, and he opened it to Isaiah 61, and he said, To this day, all these things, uh, this is being fulfilled, right? So, this was Jesus talking about himself. Uh, Isaiah said it, "...the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek." Which, of course, this is all messianic. It's prophetic. "...He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted." Watch the next part. "...to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of, of the Lord, and so on." So, John knows that these prophecies exist. If Jesus is the Messiah, then why isn't He opening the prison? Why is He not setting the captive free? Isn't that part of fulfilling the Messianic prophecies? Now that's strong, right? That, that's very clear. No ambiguity there, but look at chapter 42. I'd like to say there's an even stronger one here. Isaiah 42. Now. Just to set the scene, Isaiah 42, verse 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. You know by now who this is. This is a a, a reference to the Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled this. Um, In the the book of Matthew, even mentions this prophecy specifically. Now, come on down just a a few verses. Look with me at verse number uh, 7. It says, to open the blind eyes. Jesus did that. Look at the next thing. To bring out the prisoners from the prison, and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Now, John knows that these prophecies exist, so you can imagine sitting in that cell. You've been proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. You're expecting the kingdom to come at any moment. And Jesus, you've heard of all these great miracles that He's doing, but... Why is he not doing this miracle of opening the prison? Why not get John out of the mess that he's in? Do you see the practical application to this? So many people, strong in faith, but God allows something to happen and they think that God should step in and immediately fix it, or in due time, right, In, in, in a timely manner fix the problem and then God doesn't work according to our schedule and our faith begins to, to shake a little bit in, in, in circumstances like that. I think that's what happened with John. Uh, now, hold your place in Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 35 in just a minute. I, I want to show you something else here. Um, Matthew 11, let's get verse 4. Matthew 11 and verse 4. Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. Now, as he says this, these two men that uh, were sent on John's behalf, he says, now, I want you guys to pay attention to what you see and go tell John everything. Verse 5, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Why did Jesus do all of those things? Why did he mention all of that? These are messianic prophecies that he was fulfilling. there there was plenty of evidence to support the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is who He says he, He is. Everything that God had told John about, that the Spirit would descend as a dove, when you baptize my son, that way you'll know who He is, and everything had fallen into place. There was just that one piece missing about the prisoners. I say one piece, in John's mind, right, that, that would have been the one thing missing, the one thing that affected him directly. Jesus says, go remind John of all the evidence that there is. Now, I, I love the response here. Jesus didn't send a rebuke. John was genuinely and honestly asking a question. He, he wasn't trying to be a jerk. He wasn't trying to be stiff-hearted wasn't being rebellious. He wasn't trying to find a way out of standing for God or serving God. He had a genuine question. And there are some times in your life where a doubt or a question might arise and you'll beat yourself up because, oh, I doubted God. Okay, listen, it's better not to doubt Him. I get that. But when you do struggle with doubt to whatever extent, don't think that Jesus just crosses you off the list and says, I can't use you anymore. You're, how dare you doubt this? N- not if it's a genuine, honest question that you're trying to get answered. Uh, now, come back to Isaiah chapter 35. Let me show you why Jesus would mention all of those other things. Isaiah 35 and verse number, let's start at verse 3. Isaiah 35 verse 3. He says, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Do you see how that might uh, be applicable to John? People that are getting a bit shaken. Say to them that are of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. You see, referring to the things Jesus did. Verse 6, then shall the lame man leap as an heart, and the tongue of the dumb sing all those things Jesus fulfilled. But look at the next part. For in the wilderness shall waters break out, and streams in the desert. Did that happen? Well, no. If, if you just read Isaiah 35 straight through, and you have no um, knowledge of, of what's already happened in the New Testament. If, if you are in, let's say, 720 B.C. when Isaiah is writing this, you would assume that when the Messiah comes, all of this is going to happen almost, I want to say chronologically, you know, that, that he would do these physical miracles, healing people, and then nature would also be regenerated and fixed. Remember Romans chapter 8, right? This is why Paul said nature has this promise. Uh, it's verses like this. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert, and the parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water in the habitation of dragons where each lay shall be grass with reeds and rushes. So, nature's going to get fixed. That didn't happen when Jesus came the first time. It could have, right? It Remember that the first and what we know as the second coming, it could have happened with a short seven-year gap in between. We're going to talk later on about if the Jews had received Christ. We're in the chapter tonight that explains all that. So these things could have happened where what we now know is the, the prophecies being fulfilled in the first coming, and then these second advent or second coming prophecies that have to do with nature being fixed, all of that could have happened in a short span of time. Now, as it stands, there's a large gap. There's the church age in between. But that's, and I'm. I'm Please understand, I'm not trying to condemn John. But I would have understood it the same way he did. God said he would open the prison houses and let the captives go. But he didn't say that all of that's going to happen before the Messiah is crucified, buried, and rises again. So you have to remember that God's calendar is not the same as ours. When Jesus said, Surely I come quickly... Um, not by my standards, right? but by His. He's coming quickly. Come back to Matthew 11, and verse number 6. Matthew 11 and verse 6. Matthew 11 and 6, it says here, And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. To be offended is, is to be caused to stumble. Right? So John has stumbled a bit here, and... Listen, it's better not to doubt, right? It's better to uh, work with and accept the evidence that God has revealed. That's, That's the right way to handle it. And I think John the Baptist would be willing to agree with that. You're going to be happier if you accept the proof that God offers. But because all flesh is grass and we... Our, our flesh gets weak and we do struggle sometimes. As I mentioned earlier, don't beat yourself up if a question arises. But be humble enough, be honest enough to look at all the evidence. Don't zero in on just one thing and say, God did all this other stuff, but He didn't do this one thing. There might be something you're not understanding. So keep try to keep a soft heart in those difficult uh, moments. And, and I also want to just say here, You can protect yourself, to a certain degree, from doubting, right? You can protect yourself, to a certain degree, from having a hard heart. And I believe one of the best ways to do that is to become as familiar as you can with the Bible, right? It wouldn't hurt as well to fellowship with other Christians and hear what what they've gone through, what they're going through. And you can kind of get familiar with how God works, both in the past and in the present. You'll see that they do line up. But understanding, knowing the Bible, knowing this, the plan that God has, this whole thing we've been talking about in Romans, uh, conforming us to the image of Christ, when you understand what God is busy doing right now, when the difficult times come, there still might be some struggles, but it won't be as bad, so you can prevent some of the doubting. Right, verse number seven. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Now look at that. John has just sent some messengers, had some doubts. Jesus didn't rebuke him. He he, he rather strengthened his faith, his faith. He reminded him of all the proof that there was for him being the Messiah. And now he turns to the crowd because the crowd might have, thought, wow, John, even John doubted, sure, oh, maybe we should just write him off as a prophet or a, or a man of God or a, a believer. It's incredible how Jesus reacted. He stands up for his, this is his cousin, right? But he stands up for this guy. He says, what, when you guys were listening to John preach and you went out to the wilderness to see him preach, what did you go out there expecting? What was the word on the street about John? Did you go out there thinking you would see a reed shaking with the wind that's, you know, flopping around? John had a testimony of being a well-grounded, strong, uh, steadfast, bold guy. He wasn't a guy that flip-flopped and flaky and changed his opinion. That's not John, which this tells me something about the Lord and how He views us, right? The Lord doesn't look at one one misstep, and then as the old adage is, throw the baby out with the bathwater. The Lord looks at the whole package. He looks at the whole thing. He looks at all of John's life and John's ministry and says, okay, there might have been that one stumbling moment, but that doesn't make John a compromising, you know, doubtful preacher. He he's still, overall, he's a, he's a steadfast guy. Uh, And and the people knew that. Jesus is reminding the people of John's testimony. Verse 8, But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Well, no. John wore leathern girdles, right? The exact opposite of soft raiment. Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in kings' houses. He says, when you guys heard about this guy preaching out in the wilderness, what did you hear about him? You heard that he was bold, steadfast, standing on the promises, you, you heard that he was a rough, rugged kind of a guy, that he wasn't you know, looking for the plush, uh, fancy, dainty life. He wasn't that kind of person. He wasn't looking for that in, out of the ministry. Verse 9, But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Well, yeah, that's what they'd heard about John. They heard he was a prophet. Jesus takes it a step further. Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Now, a prophet... Anybody that stands up and says, Thus saith the Lord, and delivers a message from God, John was doing that. Just like all the other prophets you read about in the Old Testament. But there was something special about John's calling. He did stand up and say, Thus saith the Lord. But as I mentioned earlier, he's also the one that was chosen by God to be the forerunner for the Messiah and to announce the arrival of the King. This is a very unique Special, privileged position. So where the, the people might look at John and discount his ministry because of that one, that one moment of, of, of doubt, Jesus is this, this guy. He holds a special place in the plan of God. Verse 10, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. So, I want you to turn to this cross-reference. Look at Malachi chapter 3. It'll just be a few pages back. Malachi chapter 3. And that's the attendance code for tonight. Malachi 3 verse 1. Look at Malachi 3 verse 1. This is a prophecy about the messenger we know now as the forerunner. Malachi 3 1. Behold, I will send my messenger... And he shall prepare the way before me. Now the rest of the verse, Jesus did not quote. Matthew didn't give us uh, anything additional to that. It, the rest of the verse is still good. And the Lord whom ye seek shall uh, suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, speaking about the Messiah there, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So there, in that verse, there's the last half is about the Messiah, I will send my messenger, he shall prepare the way before me. So, Jehovah, right? Jehovah is speaking. You got to recognize that. I will send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he shall prepare the way before me. Now, look at the way Jesus quoted it in Matthew 11 and verse 10. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The way Jesus quoted it. It's the Father speaking about sending John before the face of Jesus and preparing the way for Jesus. But in Malachi, Jehovah, god we would maybe say God the Father, but just God says, I will send my messenger. He'll prepare the way before me. This is a great cross-reference if you put the two verses together to prove the deity of Christ. Jehovah said, I'll send the forerunner. Jesus says the forerunner was sent before me. So I... It's, it's not uh, These two verses aren't often used to prove the deity of Christ, but they should be because it's a very strong proof for that. So John has a privileged position. Jesus acknowledges this in verse 11. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Whew, that's a compliment and a half. Now the way I've always understood this is that Jesus is making a comment about John's moral character and that of all the people that have ever existed, naturally born that is, uh, so excluding Jesus, John was the best of all of them. And that still might be uh, in in focus here. That might be part of what Jesus is saying. However, I think you'll see with the last part of the verse, he might have intended this a little bit differently. By saying there's not risen any that are that is greater than John, I would say greater in privilege. There's never been a prophet that can say he was the forerunner for the Messiah, that he announced and introduced the, the, the king in this fashion. Uh, let, let's face it, John the Baptist, great guy, but there's some other stiff competition for that title. Not that it is one, but even in the Old Testament, God acknowledged... Noah, Job, Daniel, he acknowledged some other men as being very, very great men. But look at the last part of verse 11. It says, Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Well, we already know from Matthew 5, a certain, can I say, class of people that will be least in the kingdom. Those are the people that... Break one of these least commandments, and teach men so; they shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. So they're greater than John. That—that's what makes me doubt that Jesus is speaking about his moral character. Uh, I think it's talking about the the privilege that he had, the position that he that he holds in God's plan of announcing the Messiah. Now, in John's case, right. He got persecuted, thrown in prison, and forgotten by society, by and large. But those that are in the kingdom of heaven, they will have a much better situation. And that's why they would be greater than he. Not because they're better morally than John the Baptist, but they they would have a much better situation, free of all the persecution. They have the king sitting right in front of them. So in that sense, they have an even greater privilege than John in that they're sitting in front of the king, and uh, the whole world knows who he is at that point. Verse 12, now we get a history lesson. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. And we need verse 13 to help us here. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Now notice the prophets, we expect them to prophesy, that's obvious. The prophets and the law prophesied. The law prophesies. Now, what they're referring to here, you go back into what we know as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you will find many prophecies about the kingdom and the king, the Messiah. So, the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That's a, what can we say, a a short way of referring to, or a different way of referring to, the Old Testament. The Law and the Prophets. That, verse 12, that is, the, or I say those are the days of John the Baptist. So Jesus gives it a different title here. The days of John the Baptist starts with the Law and the Prophets and culminates or, or is finished with John. He's the last one to prophesy about the coming King. And then, of course, Jesus shows up and that, that time period is over. That dispensation, if you want to say it that way, is over. Now, back in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist, so from the Old Testament, until now, Jesus standing there, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence. Now this is something we cover in discipleship class. Uh, we have a lesson on the kingdoms. And I explain in that lesson that heaven and the kingdom of heaven are not the same thing. And you might remember this is the main verse that supports that and that shows that. the king, Heaven, where God lives... Right? No one has ever stormed into heaven and taken it from God, taken it by force. That's not going to happen. The kingdom of heaven is something that's down on the earth. It's when God's will is happening on earth as it is in heaven. So I, I won't re-explain all of that. You should know that from discipleship. But the kingdom of heaven suffered violence throughout the book of Judges, throughout 2 Kings and uh, 2 Chronicles. Uh, you read about both the north and the south with Gentile... Uh, oppressors coming in and driving the people out of their land and killing thousands and hundreds of thousands. So it certainly uh, suffered. Verse 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Verse 14, here's an invitation. And if ye will receive it, that is, if you will receive this message about the kingdom of heaven, if you'll receive everything that goes with that, the truth about Jesus as the Messiah, all of it. If you will receive it, this is Elias, we would say Elijah. This is Elias, which was for to come. He was the forerunner. He was prophesied to come before the Messiah. Now, note, I have it um, circled in my Bible, the word if. And if you will receive it, that word if, what an important word. It shows us the conditional nature of God's offer. The idea that God has unconditionally chosen certain people to make it, certain people not to make it, that would do away with the if. And we talked about this in Romans on Sunday night. God has foreknowledge, but that doesn't mean that He forced people to choose one thing or the other. Does God know how it's going to turn out? Yes, God knows every possible outcome. Did God know Israel was going to reject? Yes. But He gave them a legitimate offer and He gave them the choice. And there were two possible outcomes to this. God knew both were equally possible, right? Because God is not just sitting at the end watching it all take place. God is also in the present watching it unfold. He gave them a legitimate offer. If the Jews, as a nation, we're talking the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the nation, and the majority of the population, had they accepted Christ, Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, then He would have died, He would have been buried, He would have risen again. There would have been seven years of tribulation that was prophesied in Daniel 9 then Jesus would have come back and the kingdom age would have began. And had that been the arrangement, then John the Baptist would have been the fulfillment of the prophecy about Elijah coming. Now, come back to Malachi. Look at chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi 4. And uh, this whole thing is about the Messiah. Verse 4 Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So these last words before God fell silent for 400 years it it was stuck in the Jewish mindset and they knew that Elijah is going to come. Now come to Luke chapter one. You can continue to hold Matthew, get Luke chapter one. And Zacharias and Elizabeth, they've been praying about having a baby for some time. And then the angel showed up and says, Good news, you're gonna have you're gonna have a, a child and a very special one. And look with me at verse 13, Luke 1.13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Didn't Jesus say he was the greatest among those born of women? For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. I don't have time to get into talking about how greatness in God's sight is connected to being filled with the Spirit, but verse 16, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. Malachi 4.6. Uh, and, and, yeah, uh, 4.6, that's right. Verse 17, And he shall go before him in the Spirit and power Of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So, this word of prophecy was given to Zacharias that his boy was going to be used in such a way, basically telling him he's going to be fulfilling the prophecy about Elijah. But that was conditional. If the Jews would have received it, then John fulfills the role of Elijah. Because, now, John still came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He still fulfilled that, let's say he performed that function. He turned the hearts where they needed to be as much as he could. But because the Jews rejected John the Baptist, he did his part, but now that prophecy about Elijah, it is going to be fulfilled again. Elijah will come in the tribulation time. Revelation 11 talks about God sending His two witnesses. You know who they are. We've studied this last year in Revelation class. The two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Do you remember who we read about in Malachi 4 just now? That's why I read an extra verse there. Remember ye the law of Moses? And I'm going to send Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Moses and Elijah, there's your two witnesses. They're going to come back, which tells me, right, we're not quite there yet. Everybody that's getting worried about how coronavirus is spelling out the end of the world. where's John wheres where, John the bat? Where's Elijah? Where, where are the witnesses? There's lots of things that need to happen for these end days to be fulfilled. But uh, Elijah will, and maybe he won't come in the name of Elijah. Maybe it'll be a man in the power and spirit of, of Elijah. One way or the other, that prophecy will be fulfilled again i come back to Matthew 11, verse 15. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Now, any time Jesus said something difficult, deep, uh, He would usually add that, that verse or that phrase to it. He that hath ears to hear. You have, you have to be willing to accept the truth, humble enough to receive it. Uh, you have to have a, a prepared heart to receive the truth. I think in today's lingo, we would say hashtag ears to hear. Right? Anytime you see something meaty, right? anything allegorical, when we're talking about the Bible, then you have to have ears to hear. You have to accept what God's revealing. Now, that's not to say that you need to have blind faith. Blind faith, I think, is a very bad thing. But you need to be able to look at the evidence and have a soft enough heart to receive it. All right, so verse 16, now Jesus is going to condemn this, what He often referred to as an evil and adulterous generation. He's speaking to the nation as a whole. There were, of course, exceptions, but by and large, the nation had gone wrong. Verse 16, But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows. All right, so He likens them to children. So they're, they're immature. They're immature. They're reacting in a very silly, illogical manner. You're like unto children sitting in the markets and calling unto their fellows and saying, We have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. So they, they played a happy song, you know, uh, a happy tune that would normally All things being equal, caused the hearers of that song to rise and move to the music and dance. But they piped that dancing song, and the people just sat there and did nothing. They they did not give an equal response to the invitation. We have piped unto you, and you've not danced. We have mourned unto you, and you've not lamented. There were various ways that people showed mourning. You could weep, you could wail. You know, crying out. Or you could also play an appropriate song to express sadness. So now they're playing a sad tune, but they're not getting an equal response to that. The people are just looking at them strangely, going, Why are you playing a sad song? So they're just being stiff hearted, rebellious, much like you would expect. Forgive me, I'm not trying to throw all teenagers under the bus here, but much like you would think of a rebellious teenager. They're just almost purposely being bullheaded about this. Jesus says, that's the best way I I can uh, illustrate you guys, is to say that you're you're acting like children who you can hear that a proper invitation is given, and you're purposely giving this awkward, uncalled-for response. Verse 18, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath a devil." Now, this does not mean that John never ate any food or drank anything. We know that he did, right? He, he ate locust and honey and all of that. When it says eating and drinking, you can see in the next verse, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. The comparison here, John did not sit down at a table with what society called sinners. Jesus did. Jesus would sit down, have a meal, as we saw in Matthew 9, in Matthew's house. Jesus would tell them, you're sick, you need a physician, you guys need to repent. So Jesus would do that. John wouldn't. John was a socially awkward guy. Now the people saw John's, by and large, they saw John's uh, social awkwardness and that he didn't really sit down, fellowship with a bunch of people like that. They said, man, any, any preacher that won't sit down and have coffee with such and such a sinner, that man's full of the devil. That was their conclusion. Now see, that, that doesn't, that's not logical. To say that John not wanting to sit, or, or let's say, not even say not wanting, the fact that he didn't sit down with publicans and sinners, that doesn't prove you have a devil. There could be other reasons for that, but that's the conclusion they came to. Verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, now this is only what the people said, this is not what really happened. But this is the conclusion they jump to. Behold, a man gluttonous and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Now, was Jesus a friend of sinners? Well, yes, in that he came to die, right? A greater love hath no man than this, and he laid down his life for his friends. So, yes, he's a friend to sinners in that way. The way that they're intending it here, a friend of publicans and sinners, is to say he's one of them. He accepts what they're doing, and he goes along with that lifestyle. That's not the case. Yes, Jesus did sit down at a meal with people that were known for having those bad habits, gluttony, and, and drunkards, wine But that doesn't automatically mean Jesus is one of them. So again, they're looking at the evidence and coming to this strange uh, wrong conclusion. And Jesus says at the end of verse 19 at the end of verse 19, but wisdom is justified of her children. That's sarcasm. That's just 100% sarcasm, but it makes an excellent point. These people were claiming to be enlightened. They were claiming to be very wise. And yet Jesus says, now look at the conclusions that you're coming to. You accuse John of being full of the devil because he won't eat and drink with sinners. And then you say Jesus is a wicked man because he eats and drinks and with sinners. So, guys you're you're canceling out your own logic but they claim to be the enlightened wise people of the day so jesus is basically saying don't charge true wisdom with having touched these people don't they claim to be the children of wisdom don't blame wisdom for their nonsense the wisdom real wisdom is justified of her children the ones that are claiming to have come from her so, it's a very sharp comment that he makes. Verse 20, he's going to focus in on a few of the cities where he had worked. Then began he to upbraid. Now, to upbraid is to chew someone out, to really, really let them have it. Then begin he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. Here's what he said, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! Chorazin and Bethsaida, if you look at the Sea of Galilee, the northern part of Israel, Chorazin and Bethsaida are on the top, the northern portion of the the sea. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon, those were cities even farther north. I'll let you look on the map and see exactly where they're at but they were destroyed in the Old Testament. You can read about it in Zechariah and in Ezekiel. Jesus says if those cities would have seen what you guys are now seeing, they would have repented, they would have done it long ago, quickly, that is. They they wouldn't have needed much time. Chorazin and Bethsaida, they had seen such great things, and yet they still were not repenting. Now again, this tells us something about the nature of God. He takes into account... When he, when he judges people, He will take into account how much light they had access to, and then He will judge them based on that. Verse 22, But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. So God is, is fair about how He judges people. They didn't have as much light, okay. Now, they were still wrong uh, for the sins that they committed, and they deserved what they got. But... The punishment that Korazin and Bethsaida will receive will be much greater because they had a lot more light that they rejected. Verse 23 And thou, Capernaum, now remember that's Jesus' home base during his ministry, which art exalted unto heaven. Uh, This is just a figure of speech. He's just trying to say that you guys in this city, you've been taken up to a, a special place that no one else got to. You've saw you've seen things that no one else got to see. You've had a taste of heaven. Jesus living among you, working among you the way he did. He says, "Thou art uh, which art exalted unto heaven shall be brought down to hell." For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What a thought! What a thought! verse 24 but i say unto you that it shall be more tolerable for the for the land of sodom in the day of judgment than for the you know what kind of people the so- uh, the sodomites were and listen th- th- don't don't just run away with this and say yep that's a homosexual you know homophobic comment guys there was a lot more wickedness going on in sodom than just homosexuality please read ezekiel 16 you'll see there was a lot of other stuff going on L- let me let me point something out About this though. Sodom would have repented had they seen these these miracles. They would have remained, right? They would have gotten right had they seen this extra revelation. This says something about reprobation, right? Romans chapter 1 talks about somebody that gives themselves over to the lust of the flesh. God then gives them up, says, okay, you don't want the light I'm giving you? Do what you want. And the Bible says they are reprobate. Well, there are some, especially of the Reformed persuasion, that believe there's the elect and then there's the reprobate. There's the rejected. And reprobates cannot be saved according to that that system of theology. But they can be, right? Everybody would agree that somebody that's been given over to fulfill those lusts of the flesh and have, have left the natural use of you know the opposite sex, that qualifies as reprobate behavior, but they can repent. So reprobation does not mean that you can't be saved. It just means God has taken his hands off and says, I've done as much as I can. I've shown you as much as you need to see. Maybe that's a better way to say it. And you guys didn't repent, so I'll be here as soon as you're ready to repent. But I'm not touching you until then. So, Capernaum, the day of judgment, when you put Sodom next to them, Sodom was wicked, horribly wicked. Capernaum, they committed an even grosser sin than anything Sodom did because they rejected the, the Messiah. The worst sin you can commit is the sin of unbelief in what God has revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus answered and said, wait for it. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent. Now again, there's some sarcasm. He's he's talking about this wicked generation that thinks themselves to be, uh, they think that they're wise and prudent. So he's using that terminology, but in a sarcastic way. Because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. And he's saying, Father, I thank you. Thank you that you did it. Why? Because they're worthy of that sort of treatment. He's not saying, Father, thank you for unconditionally and arbitrarily and purposely blinding these people and reprobating them and rejecting them. Why, why would Jesus rejoice that the Father intentionally sent some people to hell without any... death? That, that just doesn't follow along with God's nature. But these people were worthy of this recompense, of, of this punishment. There's one sin that God mentions... Well, let me not say one. There are several that he mentions, but they're this particular sin of pride, God mentions it over and over and how much he hates that sin. And that's what Jesus is faced with. These people were proud. They were, the biblical term is froward, hard hearted, rebellious, just being a jerk is basically the, what that means. And he's saying, they, Father, I'm, I'm thankful that you took these people that society thinks of as, as simple, you know, babes unenlightened, uncivilized. You, you showed them the truth. And the common man often had no problem with Jesus because it, it just made sense what he was saying and doing. It all lined up. It was this, this hard-hearted, religious, hypocritical crowd. Proud. It, they gave Jesus so much trouble. Uh, can I show you something in Romans 1? Uh, just turn over to that quickly. Romans chapter 1 and i want to show you a couple of verses about god reacting to mankind's poor choices romans chapter 1 look with me at verse number 21 now, i know we've covered these verses not too long ago in romans but just to quickly remind you romans 1:21 because that when they knew god they glorified him not as god neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. Matthew 11. They became fools. Uh, So you see what they did. They had the truth. They knew that there was God, and yet they purposely went against it. They thought they could figure out uh, the right way and what God is. They tried to create God after their image and so forth. Look at verse 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. God did not force them. He did not choose on their behalf that they would be unclean. God saw what they did, and then God reacted to their choice. They professed themselves to be wise. They were lifted up with pride. God said, okay, if that's the attitude you want to have, then help yourself. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's what they did. Watch the reaction. Verse 26, for this cause God gave them up unto vile affections for even their women did change and so forth. Now notice, for this cause God gave them up. Doesn't that completely dismantle The idea of unconditional election. The idea that God chooses just because He wants to. There's a reason that He does what He does. Come back to Matthew 11. Now, I hope that's clear. I I don't want to spend all night on that, but uh, when we come to places like this, I think it's good to at least point it out. Now, Matthew 11 and verse 26, Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Uh, It it pleased the Father and it pleased the Son to treat the proud in this way and to treat the humble in this way. For a proud man, God stops revealing more truth. He offers him the light. If that man keeps rejecting light, God says, You don't want light? Okay, I'll give you darkness. Jesus is happy with that. He says, You know what? That's the good and the right way to do it. They had the chance. They didn't receive it. But the humble, to see that person who society thinks is uh, ignorant and unlearned, Acts 4.13, to see God continually reveal more and more. Listen, God shows you light and you accept it. You know what God's going to do? He'll give you more light and more light and more light. You say, well, you know, certain people don't get any light. That's not true. John 1.9 says Jesus is the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. The Bible says in John 6, every man shall be taught of God. Everybody gets some light to work with based on what they do with it, right? Then God says, okay, I see what you chose, and then He reacts to that. Can I ask you to put a cross-reference here? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 29. Great passage about how God takes the things that the world counts as nothing, and He uses those people to bring to nothing the things that the world considers to be great. But I'll let you read that later on when you have time. Uh, Matthew 11 and verse 27, all things are delivered unto me of my Father. Now everything that Jesus said and did in His earthly ministry came down from the Father. The Father commanded Him, said, say this, do this, God uh, let's say the Father gave Jesus the authority, the power, and the instructions, all the commands that He needed, to reveal God to the people. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Well, that's true. You, you only, we only know who the Son of God is because the Father chose to reveal it, right? Right? Had He not revealed it, we'd still be scratching our heads as to what this great man was all about. But the Father is the only one who knows everything there is about the Son. And then He says, almost vice versa, Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son. Well, amen. No one can understand the Father except for Jesus, who was part of the Godhead. He was the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But look at the last part. And he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. We can know the Father. We can know the Son. But we can only know them through revelation. Through revelation. Listen. You're not going to discover God through philosophy, through psychology, through education, through spiritism, through religious uh, rituals, through talking to ancestors, None of that is going to help you understand and know God and develop a, a honest, truthful relationship with Him. You have to accept the revelation that He's given about Himself. You have to listen to His own testimony and take Him at His word. Listen, you cannot understand God through scientific experiments. God, the giver of the natural law, is by... It, by virtue of giving the natural law as being the lawmaker makes him outside of the natural law. He has to be above that. He has to be greater than that. Hence he is supernatural. So there's no reason it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. It's not logical to think, let me run a series of of tests and discover through natural processes where God came from or who God is. That 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 just simply is not logical. The fact that there is anything here means that there has, there has to be a cause for this effect, and the cause right, has to be greater than... He has to have the power to make this happen. He has to, have, he has to be greater than that. But you know, that's something we've covered in the past as well. Verse number 28. Now we're going to step into Jesus' classroom. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest. So an invitation is given here. Labor and heavy laden. You're working hard and you're burdened. Amen. Now that's quite a few of the people I, I know in our church that they would, they qualify. Labor and are heavy laden. You, you can be burdened down with all sorts of things. It might be a load of sins. It might be a load of cares and worries, anxiety. It might just be questions. A little bit like John the Baptist, you know, why this, why that? God, why hast thou forsaken me? Who knows what's weighing you down? Whatever the case is, you have the invitation. Jesus says, come here, I'll, I'll teach you how to rest. I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. That's why I say classroom. His classroom is not a building it's not a church building. It's not a house. It's not my office. Jesus' classroom is the yoke. So you think of two oxen, right? And they have the yoke over their necks. Jesus is the lead ox. Take my yoke upon you. you I, my grandfather explained this to me years ago. You always put an experienced ox with a new ox. And that way the, the new ox is getting broken in. He will learn from the experienced ox how to pull that plow, how to, how to work in the yoke. And then by the time that old one is ready to become biltong, you move the younger one to the experienced position and you just continually rotate. Well, Jesus, right, he's the experienced ox. He's, which the ox, by the way, is a picture of a servant of God in the Bible. But he says, take my yoke upon you learn of me. Watch how I do it. Follow me and I will make you. just Just watch how I live. That's why it's so incredibly important for us to study the Gospels, to see how Jesus behaved, how He thought. Why did He do what He did? Well, we saw it in verse 27. All things were delivered unto Him from the Father. He waited for God's instruction before He did anything. His life was ordered by the Word of God. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Jesus was not seeking to gain reputation. He made himself of no reputation. He was not trying to make a name for himself. He was trying to be obedient to God. People's opinions had no bearing on that. Whether they accepted or rejected him, he had one goal above all, and that was, I want to be about my father's business. So when people provoked him and were mean to him, right? he reacted meekly. That is, he was gentle and patient with them. He was lowly in heart. So when they said, We we hate you, get away from us, away with him, crucify him, he could go to the cross and pray for him, said, Father, forgive him. It says at the end, And ye shall find rest unto your souls. Your soul is going to be able to rest and lay down those cares or those sins or those questions, you'll find everything you need, all the instructions for life, all the answers to life's questions in the person of Jesus Christ. All of it. Your, your soul will rest because you will know, this. I can't do any better. I cannot improve upon this way of living. I'm, I'm in the yoke. I'm following in the footsteps of Christ. I can't do better than this. And you'll find a great peace come over your soul to say, God, you, you, this is the acceptable life. This is the way you want me to act. Verse 30, For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Guys, no matter what decision you make, there is a yoke and there is a burden. You say, I'm my own person. I make my own decisions. I call the shots. No one's going to tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, that's a very heavy burden to bear. You take all of life's responsibilities on yourself. Say, well, you know, I make the decision. I'll take the responsibility. What happens when you get weak and fall? What are you going to do then? There's no one there to help you carry the load. You're all by yourself. I mean, sure, in the short term, you know, it's a much easier process if you don't have to ask permission, if you don't have to learn from anybody else. How do I do this? You just do what you feel like doing. In the short term, that's the easy way to do it. But, guys, we don't live just a short-term type of life. you got to think beyond just these few years down here on earth. you got to think beyond just tomorrow. If you just want to consider the earthly life, the decisions you're making today, right, you'll reap what you sow. You sow to the flesh, you'll, of the flesh, reap corruption. And that yoke gets difficult. The way of transgressors is hard, the Bible says. It's a heavy burden to bear. Ecclesiastes says it like this, But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. If you're in the yoke with Christ and you begin to stumble and fall, you're in the yoke, he'll he'll stabilize you. That's what makes his yoke so easy. Because He is there to walk with us every step of the way. Every decision we make, every valley we go through, He's there to lighten the path. His rod and His staff, they comfort me. I know that He's always going to give me what I need for the situation, whether that's grace, spiritual strength, friends, instruction, whatever it is. That's what makes it so easy and the burden so light, because he's, he is fulfilling the law of Christ. He's bearing the burden with me. All right, we're going to stop there for tonight. I hope all of that was clear. If you guys do have any questions, I've seen a few comments still coming through, so that's, that's good. Um, I, don't, I don't see any questions, but I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. If you want to slip a, quest, a question in, feel free. If not, uh, as always, you're more than welcome to contact me personally. Father, thank you this evening for the privilege, absolute privilege, of reading about our Savior. Lord, help us. We want to step into your classroom. Take that yoke. Lord, this is where we want to be, side by side, letting you pull. And we feel, we feel that tug and we just follow along. God, help us to have soft hearts ready to receive what you have to say. Lord, for anybody that might be struggling with a doubt, maybe a few questions have arisen in their hearts, I pray You'd give them the answers that they're seeking. Have mercy on them, Lord. Help them. Thank You for the, for the, for, for the opportunity tonight to study and learn. I pray you bring us back tomorrow ready, hungry, with ears to hear. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Alright, you guys have a good night. Lord willing, you'll see me tomorrow.